Good morning. Good morning. Turning your Bibles, if you would, church, to uh, Titus chapter 3, actually. Titus chapter 3. In your bulletin, you see Titus chapter 2, and we are going to go there. But I want to actually show you something from Titus chapter 2. Excuse me, Titus chapter 3. Go to the very end of that book. So if you're using one of those pew Bibles, or I, we use pew Bibles. You don't have pews in here. But if you're using one of the Bibles provided, one of those blue Bibles, that's page 998. Go to the end of the book, Titus chapter 3. And I just want to read the last few words of the book of Titus. So Titus chapter 3, the very last verse. Here's what I want to show you. I just got done preaching on this text. Paul says this, All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So... I want to do that this morning. I want to send you greetings from Gethsemane Baptist Church. We love you guys so much. We've been praying for you. We've been praying for you in almost every one of our services. And we're so thankful for your pastors. We are so thankful for how you all are faithful to the gospel here in Westerville. So uh, just know that we, you're, there's a little church up in Marengo, Ohio, that's been praying for you, that loves you. And now uh, I'm going to go back to our church and report how you're doing. And uh, we're just so encouraged by you. We're so thankful to the Lord that he has saved you and that he is growing you and that he's causing Christ to be exalted here in Westerville. So go back a chapter to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 will be in verses 11 through 15. 11 through 15. Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 through 15. This is 998 in your, in your Bibles. Listen to God's word. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, at our church, like I said, we've been going through the book of Titus. And, uh, and what we've seen thus far, since, since we're sort of parachuting right into the middle of this book, uh, we're, we're actually, I'm going to give you just a little bit of background here. Paul is, is giving instructions to a church led by a young pastor. Now, you can't relate with that, can you? Okay, no. <laughs> of course you can. And Paul, it, Paul's writing to this young pastor, and this, and this young pastor is leading this church that is in the middle of a culture that is completely awash with carnality. In fact, in, you, you see this, this kind of culture that Paul describes in chapter 1, verse 12. He describes them as dishonest, evil, 
and lazy. Sound familiar? It's a culture that is dishonest, evil, and lazy. And he gives instructions. Not, he doesn't give instructions to Titus on how to transform the culture. He doesn't even give instructions to Titus on how to withdraw from culture. Actually, he gives Titus instruction on how to be, on how to cultivate a healthy church. Because he thinks that a healthy church is going to be the very best thing for a culture that has gone awash with carnality. So throughout this book, he gives instructions on how to find elders. We see that in chapter 1. He gives instructions on how to get rid of false teachers, people who are teaching contrary to the gospel. And then how to relate with one another who are in the church. And we see that at the beginning of chapter 2. In fact, where, we, where, we, where we're picking up in chapter 2, Paul has just laid out what it looks like for the members of a healthy church to relate with one another. If you've ever read Titus chapter 2, you, you know that older men are to teach younger men, and, and, the, and the older women are supposed to be reverent in their behavior and teach the younger women on how to be godly and to be obedient to their husbands and to, and to love their children. And he also gives instructions to bond servants on how they're supposed to bring God glory by submitting to their masters. And Titus, it says at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Titus is supposed to teach what accords with sound doctrine. He is supposed to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And this, and this sound doctrine, as it's being taught, is supposed to be the means by which God, through His Word, trains the older men how to be godly older men. Older women, how to be godly older women. And so on and so forth with the younger men and the younger women. And with the bondservants, that is. And as we see at the end of chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, look down at your Bibles, chapter 2, verse 10. Why is he doing all of this? Well, he gives part of an answer at the end of chapter 10. He says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It's so that God will be made much of. It's so that the grace of God will be made much of. But then he goes on and he says in verse 11, which is where we began reading. Verse 11, he says, for, or because, the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. In other words, the whole reason why older men are to teach younger men, and older men are to be dignified, and, and older women are to be dignified, and younger men are to be self-controlled, and, and younger women are to love their husbands and to love their children, bond servants to be submissive to their masters. The whole reason for that, Paul says in verse 11, is for the grace of God has appeared. It's because of grace. It's because of the grace of God. And Paul then grounds everything he said beforehand in verses 1 through 10 in what he's about to say in verses 11 through 15. He's grounding everything. That's why he says, for the grace of God has appeared. So here's, this is standard Paul argumentation. I understand you've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and then you went through another Pauline book. I can't remember which one. Um, you know this. Paul says, this is who you are in Christ. Now, do this because what I'm telling you to do is completely in line with, completely consistent with who God has made you to be in Christ. Same argumentation here. 
do all of this because the grace of God has appeared in your life. That's what he's saying. So the reason why we're, why we're to pursue all of these things, Paul says, is grace. Here's what he says. Let's look at verses 11 through 15. And we'll do it in three points. This is, for those of you who are note takers, uh, we're going to do it, this in three points. Let me give you three points. G- grace saves us. Grace trains us. And grace purifies us. So now you don't have to listen for the rest of the sermon because I see in your, in your bulletin you've got notes printed out, so now you, don't, now you can just check out. And uh, No, don't do that. Don't do that. But let's look at, look at three points. Grace saves us, grace trains us, and grace purifies us. Let's look at number one. Grace saves us. Well, Paul begins by saying, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It's for all people. Now, the word... When you look down at your ESV, if you're, if you're using an ESV translation, the word bringing there is not in the original language. And, and, and the word salvation there in the ESV actually goes back to the word, it connects to the word grace. So here's, if we we're going we to translate it literally, a literal rendering would sound just like this. All right, For the saving grace of God has appeared for all people. If we were going to translate it literally, that's what it would sound like. The sa- it's exactly the same idea that the ESV is translating. It's a good translation, but here's a little bit more, more literal. For the saving grace of God has appeared for all people. Now, I want you to see a couple of things from this passage. First, when the saving grace of God appeared, the Son of God appeared. When the saving grace of God appeared, the Son of God appeared. Now, historically, when did this happen? When did the saving grace of God appear in history? Well, if you're thinking of the incarnation, then that's exactly right. When the saving grace of God appeared and invaded the darkness of this world, it was when the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Christ was the embodiment of God's unmerited kindness to sinners. Amen? Say amen to that. You can say amen. We're a Baptist church. You can say amen. Yeah. In fact, John tells us in his gospel, he says, the law came through Moses. Right? The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law of God was absolutely a gracious thing for God to give us. Amen and amen. But that's just not what John says. John says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When Christ appeared, the grace of God appeared with him. Which, which, and, it, and it accomplished our salvation, which leads me to the second thing I want, to, I want you to see from this passage. There is a note, when you look at this, the grace of God has appeared. It appeared. It's done. There is a note in this passage of finality, is there not? There's a note of finality. It's, it, it's, it's done. It's in history. It's accomplished. It's done. 
saving grace appeared for all people. He gave Himself for us. He redeemed us from all lawlessness. And here's what I want you to say. Uh, here's what I want you to see. There's a note of finality in this passage because when Christ appeared, Christ accomplished something. When, the work of Christ was not an attempt, but was an accomplishment. You understand that? The, wor the work of Christ in, that was uniquely tied to his person was, was not an attempt to save. So in other words, the, the, Paul doesn't say the grace of God has appeared attempting to bring salvation. He said the grace of God has appeared as if what Christ brought was not an attempt but an accomplishment. Christ appeared because Christ was sent. He was sent, which means that there was an assignment. What was that assignment? What was the assignment that he was given? Well, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 tells us. Matthew says, His name shall be called Jesus. For He shall save His people from their sins. It doesn't say that He's going to try to save. It doesn't say that He's going to hope to save. He's not going to do His part and he's just hoping that you're going to do your part, and then together you'll come together and accomplish the work of salvation. That's not what he says. He shall save his people from their sins. The grace of God has appeared, and the salvation that he has brought to all people is now accomplished. Amen? Amen. Well, there's not just a note of finality, there's also a note of totality. Not just finality, but there's also totality. Christian, here's, here's what you need to be reminded of. Grace, grace means that this, what, what appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ, is completely and in, entirely wholly undeserved. It is undeserved. Otherwise, it's not grace. Grace means that it's all God and we haven't contributed anything to this. The divine equation of salvation is this. This is the divine equation of salvation. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. J plus N plus E for all of you mathematicians out there. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So, to quote, to quote Jonathan Edwards, you added nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You added nothing to your salvation except the sin that made your salvation necessary. So, Christian, God is not impressed with you. Do you understand that? God's not impressed with your good works. He's not impressed with your morality. But I've been a really good person. That's not impressive to God. He, God, was impressed with Jesus. He wasn't impressed with you. He was impressed with Jesus. And the grace of the gospel means that 
all that was impressive to God that was found in the perfect person and the perfect fulfillment of the law of Christ in his person and work, that's what God was impressed with. And what God did was impute all of that perfection to poor, helpless, hell-deserving sinners like you and like me. That's grace. That's grace. And you know what? That very fact that grace is grace, that you added nothing to your salvation, that very fact should humble you to the dust. Amen? It should humble you to the dust because God has exalted you in Christ. What a scandal the gospel is, isn't it? That sinners should be made righteous by the righteous one taking all of our sins on himself. What a scandal the gospel is. Why did God choose to do it this way? Why did he do it? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 says, so that no one may boast. It's so that at the very end of this age, when Christ returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Not that we all contributed to this wonderful plan called team salvation. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it was all done to the praise of His glorious grace. Amen? Amen. So the saving grace of God appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here's the good news, especially if you're a non-Christian. If you're a non-Christian, this is good news for you. By laying down His life for sinners and for their sins, we are saved by grace alone. By, through faith alone, apart from good works. All to the glory of God alone because it was accomplished by Christ alone. Amen? So grace saves us, but grace also trains us. This is number two in our outline. Number two, grace trains us. Well, Paul then says, for saving grace, if we can translate it that way, the, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. It trains us. Okay, so how does, what, does this what does God's grace train us to do? Well, first, first it trains us, look down at your Bibles, at verse 12, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions ungodliness and worldly passions. That word renounce in the original language has the idea of turning away from something with complete abandon and complete disregard. It, what we're turning away from is what he says, ungodliness. And it's this kind of lifestyle. Ungodliness is this kind of lifestyle that, that has a complete disregard for who God is, for what God has commanded and what God has done in redemptive history. So, godly, ungodliness has a lot to do with the, with the word lawlessness down in verse 14. Ungodliness is almost always lawlessness. Even if you think you're adhering to the moral standards by not trusting in the righteousness of Christ, by, not, by being a legalist, you're still lawless. That's the 
That's the paradox of legalism, but we, we need to move on. It's, it, ungodliness is still lawlessness, and it's the very thing that Christ has saved us from, verse 14 tells us. And then he says, uh, worldly passions, or as if, you, if you read the King James Version, it, it says worldly lusts. And what, what Paul is saying here is, is that there is a desire of our hearts that pulls us toward what the world says is okay, it's a desire in our hearts that pulls us toward what the world says we ought to want and what we ought to have. And you see, the grace of God is not just what saves us from the penalty of our sin, but also the grace of God continually trains us and actually saves us and cleanses us from even the love of our sin. It cleanses us even from these worldly passions that sometimes spring up in our hearts. Well, look at, what, look at what he says next. Saving grace not only trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but it actually trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Well, if you, if you go back to, uh, to, to the end of chapter 1 and you see what Paul says about uh, elders, elders are to be self-controlled, uh, false teachers are to be marked out, and one of the reasons that they are to be marked out is because they have no self-control over their passions. Um, older men are to be self-controlled. Uh, older women are to be self-controlled. Younger women are to be self-controlled. Younger men, Paul says one thing about younger men. They need self-control. Uh-huh. <laughs> All God's people said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bond servants need self-control. There's, there's just this constant refrain in the book of Titus about self-control. And here he is again talking about self-control. Renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions looks like, on the positive side, exercising self-control. And it is this outworking of saving grace. Because God has saved this person, there is a new heart that loves new things. We don't hate the God we once hated, and we now love the God we once hated. And now that heart is transformed, and self-control is actually this spirit-wrought change in this person's life. The same with upright. When he says, uh, the, the, the grace of God uh, trains us to not only renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Upright is from the same word where we get the word righteous, where God has declared sinners righteous in Christ, guiltless, blameless before Him. Well, it's the same word here, upright. And, it's, and what he's saying here is that those who have been declared righteous in Christ should show a life, should live a life that is in accordance with that righteousness that has been declared. So you should Live righteously because you've been declared righteous in Christ. That's what he's saying. And, the, the, and then he gets back to this word, godly lives. So we're to renounce ungodliness and we're to live godly, is what Paul says. And so if ungodliness is, is, living, this, is living this life that completely ignores who God is, who completely ignores what God has done and what he requires, then what godliness is, it's a lifestyle that loves God, that adores God, that, 
that, that loves God for who He is, reveres God in who He is. It acknowledges what He's done, and then it responds with grateful obedience to who God is. And then look at what he says in verse 13. Paul tells us that grace not only trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, it not only trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That present age is this time period between Christ's first coming and His second coming. And then he says, grace trains us, number th- uh, verse 13, it says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, the, uh, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, the grace of God trains us to wait for our blessed hope. The grace of God trains us to wait for our blessed hope. Now, what's our blessed hope? Well, well, first of all, let's ask this question. What is hope? What is hope? Is hope just wishful thinking? Uh, You know, you hope you win a million dollars, right? Or you hope that your kids grow up and, 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 and live self-controlled and uh, responsible and godly lives. You, you hope, but you can't guarantee it. Is that what Paul means when he says, waiting for our blessed hope? Answer, no. That's not what he means. Hope, according to Paul, is not wishful thinking. Hope, according to Paul, is confident expectation. It is confident expectation. Hope here means that we have this confident expectation that the coming of the Son of God will happen as God has promised according to His Word. Now, how can we be confident of that? Well, friends, it's because God is faithful to every single one of His promises. God has a complete and perfect track record of making promises and delivering on every single one of those promises. He's completely trustworthy. He, he promised Israel that he would deliver them out of Egypt. What happened? He brought them out of Egypt in a glorious way. Uh, he promised Abraham a son. He gave Abraham a son. He promised that he would once and for all rescue his people from their sins by making a, a perfect atonement for all, that was sufficient for all time, what happened? The Son of God became flesh, dwelt among us, and bore our sins in His body on the tree and, and satisfied the wrath of God in our place. God is faithful to every single one of His promises. Amen? Amen. Or we could just say this, as the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. Now, I did ask you, what is the blessed hope? And the answer to that is right in the next next clause, the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And so if I were to ask you, what what is your blessed hope? You could very well go to verse 13 and say, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll call that the Sunday school answer, right? And that's the right answer. You should answer that way. But let me ask you, some, let me ask you this. What is your blessed hope? I'm not talking about when you're at church and when we've got our religious robes on. 
I, I, I'm, I'm talking about in the day-to-day. -day. What is your blessed hope? In other words, what have you set your heart on most in this life? Is it that your, your kids will become really successful? Because if they grow up and they, they become really successful, then it'll, it'll sort of vindicate you as a parent that you did it right, you know? Which is a horrible reason to parent, by the way. But, but, but is that your blessed hope? The, 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 the best thing that can possibly happen to you in this life is that your kids will grow up and be really successful? Is it, is it that you'll retire with enough money? You know? You'll be really successful. You'll have a great career. And you'll, you'll retire with enough money. And, and, and when you retire with enough money, people will finally respect you. And, the door, and doors of opportunity will, will fling open to you. Is that your blessed hope? Teenagers or young people? Is it, that, is it that you'll graduate from college with a perfect career lined up? You don't, you don't have to go job searching and you'll, just, you'll be able to skip all the hardships all the, all, the, all, the, all the different things that come that you hear horror stories about with the interview processes and all that stuff. Is it, or, or is it not just finding a career? Is it finding Mr. Right or, or Miss Right? <laughs> is it finding a spouse? Is that your blessed hope? Finding the person you were always meant to marry? What about really good health? Is that your blessed hope? Is eating clean foods your blessed hope? All God's people said, uh-oh. <laughs> right? Is that your blessed hope? Being malady-free, be, being, 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 be, being free from ailments and no more aches, no more pains, no more health complications, is that your blessed hope? Is that where your heart is? Now, search your heart in this moment, Christian. Is that your blessed hope? You see, here's what the Bible teaches. If you set your hope on anything other than Jesus, then everything else will crush you. If you set your hope on anything other than Jesus, then that thing will crush you, or it will crush everything you love. Your spouse and your kids will crush you when they don't measure up to your standards? Your job and, your, and money will demand and demand and demand and demand from you until you have nothing more to offer, including your family. Listen, Christian, the only person who can handle the weight of your expectations, the only person who is worthy of your hope is Christ. That's the only person who, can, who, can, who is worthy of your hope. He won't crush you because He was crushed for you. He's the only God who's worthy of your worship. Who's only, who is the only God who is worthy of your, of your, of your ultimate hope and your, and your confident expectation. So the confident expectation, our blessed hope, 
is that our Lord will come again just as He promised and He will right every single wrong, including school shootings at Christian schools. He will right that wrong. Amen? Even when our president doesn't mention it, but affirms the person who attacked that school, Jesus will come as a just and perfect judge, and He will right every wrong. Christ will come. He will put an end. He will vindicate the righteous. He will vindicate every wrong done against every single one of His elect. And He will put an end to sin and sorrow. Dear Christian, that is our blessed hope. Amen? This world is not worthy of your hope. It's just not. Your job is not worthy of your hope. Do you, do you, uh, do you sing the hymn, Behold Our God? Do you see it? I'm seeing, okay. You know what I'm talking about? Behold Our God. We love to sing that hymn our church. And the reason why is because we long to see God. Don't we? Amen. You say amen to that? We long to see our God. We long to behold Him. Beloved, it is at the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we will be able to sing that hymn, Behold Our God, and finally behold our God. Isn't that amazing? It, it will be at the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we will finally behold our God. You know what trains you to do that? Grace. It's the grace of God that trains you to, to, to regard this world as entirely unworthy of your hope and so that your eyes look outward and upward to Christ as your blessed hope and His appearing as our blessed hope. And when you set your hope on Christ and His appearing, you'll find that what happens is you renounce ungodliness, you renounce worldly passions, and you live self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age because your hope is not in this present age, but in Christ, who is our only hope in life and death. Well, let's look lastly at number three, grace purifies us. Grace saves us, which we saw number one. Grace trains us, number two. And then lastly, grace purifies us. Grace purifies us. So Paul, after saying that we're waiting for this blessed hope and the, and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, it says, this Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Verse 14. So what we see here is that grace purifies first by sending us a sinless substitute. He sent God, God's grace purifies us first by sending us a, sin, a sinless substitute. Now, Paul, that's, that's what Paul means when he says... Uh, who gave himself for us. Now, I remember years ago, I was listening to R.C. Sproul. You all know R.C. Sproul? Okay. 
All right, R.C. Sproul, super great teacher. I love listening to R.C. Sproul. He said this in a lecture one time. I heard him say, I never forgot it. He said, one of the most important words in all of the New Testament is this word that's translated in the ESV for. Now, okay. And he said, it's one of the most important words in all of the New Testament. You can almost hear him saying this, right? And, and it's in, 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 the, in the Greek, it's the word, you're going to go to seminary this morning. It's the word, who pair. Everybody say that together. Who pair. Say it together. Who pair. Okay, that's the most important word in all of the New Testament. You just learned the most, per, the, the, the most important word. What does that word mean? It means on behalf of. That's what, it, that's what it means in this, in this very passage. It's, it's on behalf of. So here's how we would translate it. Christ gave himself on our behalf. He gave himself on our behalf. Christian, God began purifying you when Christ took everything that should have been yours. When Christ took everything that should have been yours, he took that on himself at the cross. When he endured God's wrath on your behalf, that's when he began to purify you. It says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. From all lawlessness. So God didn't save you so that you don't have to obey his law. <laughs> right? He didn't save you so that you don't have to obey his law. He saved you because you didn't obey his law. And he saved you so that you could and so that you should obey his law. By the way, all by grace. It's all by grace. But that's not all. He says, he gave himself on our behalf to redeem us from all unlawlessness and then to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So grace purifies by providing a solution to our sin, namely, a sinless substitute. But then grace also purifies us by giving us a new heart with new desires. That's what happens when God purifies a sinner. He takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, applies it to the account of that person, all by grace, and then Ezekiel chapter 36 tells us that God takes out this heart of stone and he gives in its place a heart of flesh. There's a new heart that desires new things, including God himself. So, what, what Paul is saying here is that because there's a new heart, because this transformation of a sinner is so radical and so total, that, that one of the things that, that starts to stand out is that there is a zeal for good works. There is a zeal for good works. This is one of the external evidences of knowing whether someone is a Christian. It's by their zeal for good works. There's a desire. There is an excitement for good works. But listen, I want you to understand this. There's a zeal for good works, but there's not a quota for good works. 
There's a zeal for good works, but there's not a quota. In other words, you, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to do this, 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 and this, this number of times in order for us to be comfortable calling you a Christian. That's not what this passage teaches. What this passage teaches us is that there is a new heart and that there is a new zeal for good works, but not a quota. Where there is a zeal for good works, even those good works, even if those good works are few and those, and those efforts, I don't know if you have these days, but your efforts to live a godly life is weak and frail and it, sometimes you're wondering, am I even a Christian? Do you struggle with that? But the question is not, is there a quote, are you meeting a quota for good works? The question is, is there a new heart that desires conformity to the image of Christ? Well, in that case, there's purifying grace in that person's life. Here's the point. Here's the point, Christian. Redemption is where Christ claimed you as his own, but Christ's claiming work is always a cleansing work. Christ's claiming work is always a cleansing work. And that cleansing work is, is made obvious, according to this passage, by creating this new passion and this new, new, this new zeal, this new desire for good works, for obedience. Well, the question then becomes, how does this grace come to us? Okay, grace saves us, grace, grace, and now grace is purifying us, but how does this grace come to us? Well, look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. Paul says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So the answer is this. How, do, how, do, how does, how does uh, this purifying grace come to us? Well, the answer is by the ordinary means of grace. You know what the ordinary means of grace are. Preaching, prayer, the Lord's Supper, and baptism, to name a few. Also fellowship of the saints, these things that God has ordained, that, that you might grow in godliness. These are the means of grace that God has designed. God has designed these, these things. Now Titus, this, this young pastor, he was to preach these things. It says he's to declare, he's to exhort, he's to rebuke with all authority. He is supposed to speak with authority, because he's been given authority. And he's to preach, not just his own opinions, he's to preach with all authority, because God has given him that authority by virtue of the congregation, and he's to preach what these things are. He's not to preach his own opinions, he's to, de he's to declare these things, the Bible, the truth of God's word. And he was to preach these things without fear of man, which in, on, in, in all honesty might be one of the most, one of the most uh, common things that young pastors deal with. Young pastors constantly deal with this question, what do people think of me? How am I being perceived right now? And the temptation, the temptation is just, just, Young pastors all the time are being, are being encouraged to, 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 to be liked, to, to build a big church. Don't offend the big tithers in the, in the church, right? Otherwise, they'll stop giving. 
keep the peace. And, and the temptation is to think that if we never talk about sin, if young pastors never talk about sin and never attack it head on, never attack sin head on, then things will just, you know, things will just, we don't have to deal with sin, we don't have to deal with controversy, we don't have to deal with all of the painful things that happen when sinners are gathered in the same room. And young pastors are constantly faced all the time. So let me speak directly to the pastors in this room. If you're a pastor, raise your hand. One, two, three. Okay, okay. All three of us. Listen, if you never talk about sin, pastors, you cannot preach Christ, you cannot preach the cross if you don't preach what sent Him there to begin with. You must preach sin. You must, must preach it with authority. You must exhort, you must rebuke, and you must do it with all authority, speaking on behalf of heaven. And you must do it with love, amen, and amen, tenderness and compassion, amen. I remember John MacArthur saying it this way. Hard sermons make soft hearts. Soft sermons tend to just make hard hearts. Again, that needs to be done in love and tenderness and kindness as a loving shepherd, because Christ is a loving shepherd. But you cannot, if you never preach about sin, then grace isn't worth a thing. What makes grace so amazing is the sin that Christ saved us from and the penalty that that sin incurred upon us. But if Titus exhorts and rebukes with all authority, appealing to the Word of God as his ultimate authority, then God, what, 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 what's going to happen here is that God is going to use the preaching of the Word as a means of grace to grow the saints in grace. And you know what happens? Here's what happens. They begin, the saints begin to renounce ungodliness. They begin to renounce worldly passions. They begin to live self-controlled lives. They begin to, they, they begin to live upright and, and godly lives. And they begin to, to, to not set their hope on this world. They begin to set their hope on the second coming of Christ and on the world to come, not on this world. Preaching is one of the most important things you can have in your entire life. Because it is God's means of sanctifying you and conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. By the way, so is the Lord's Supper, which we're about to take. The Lord's Supper is also a means of grace that is meant as God's kindness to you in sanctifying you into the image of Christ. Now, friends, you've been very patient. Let me, let me close by giving you just a little bit of exhortation. Here's what I want you to understand as we come to a close. So many people, and I'm not just talking about our church, Gethsemane Baptist Church in Marengo, Ohio. I'm talking about a lot of churches across evangelicalism. So many people think that we are saved by grace, but we're sanctified by works. You know? 
We're, we're, we're saved by grace, but we're sanctified by works. Some people say, yeah, 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 I know. Okay, great. I'm, I'm, uh, the grace of God has appeared. Salvation has been brought. Now I'm saved. I'm born again. And now I'm in the kingdom. And now I've got to prove to both myself and everyone else that I'm a Christian. And I've got I've to work this out really, really hard. I've got to work out my salvation with fear being afraid of God, and trembling. I'm trembling at God. I'm not thinking of what comes immediately after that, for, for it is God who works in us, both to do what, both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. But so many people begin to think that, okay, now I've got I've to produce, and I've got to produce, and I've got to produce, and I've got to work this out, and I've got to produce all of these works in order to show that I'm a Christian. Now, is that what saving faith does? Faith does produce works. Amen and amen. Go read the book of James. But what I, begin, what I see is that slowly but surely, people begin to base their salvation on their sanctification. They begin to base their justification on their sanctification rather than doing exactly what Paul has been telling us in all of his books and even in this, even in this, in, in this chapter, in this passage. You are to base your sanctification on your justification. You are to produce good works out of gratitude for what God has done because you are justified by faith. People begin to think that to the degree that they are sanctified is the degree to which they're saved. Do you understand? They begin to think that to the degree that they're sanctified is the degree to which they're saved. Oh, maybe I should, maybe I should change that. To the degree they think they're sanctified is the degree to which they're saved. They think they're saved. Christian, that is so wrong. And I've got good news for you. That is so wrong. And that's good news. That's part of the good news. The other part of the good news is this. God sanctifies His saints. God will not fail to sanctify every single one of His saints and present a perfect bride to His Son on the last day. When he appears. Again, I've come across so many people who think of Jesus. He's, he's a great Savior and they hear, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus is this really great, great Savior. And then once they get saved, he becomes impatient. And he's just in this perpetual state of annoyance with Christians. I don't know if you've come across Christians who have this guilty conscience all the time about this. And, and now they think of Jesus as being in this state of perpetual annoyance with them. So they hear, they hear this, they hear Jesus saying, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will put you on probation. You know? Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for, 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 I, am, for I am tough and angry in heart, and you will find a burden for your souls. For my yoke is hard and my burden is heavy. Now you know that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus said. What Jesus says to Christians is, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our efforts, our efforts, you've got to hear me on this, our efforts to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, to do all of these things, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, 
what, what happens in people's hearts is they, they begin to see that as the grounds of their assurance. Do you see? To the degree I'm sanctified is the degree to which I'm justified. And Christian, that is so wrong. You can't do this on your own. You can't. Renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, you can't do this on your own. The Baptist, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Go read that. That's a great confession of faith. Baptists have been saying this for almost 400 years. A lot of Baptists throughout 400 years have been saying this. Here's what they say about good works. The ability of believers to do good works does not arise at all from themselves, but entirely from the Spirit of Christ. So do you hear the language? Not all, not at all, but entirely. You, these good works do not come at all from themselves, but entirely from the, Spirit of, from the Spirit of Christ. You know what you call that? Grace. The grace of Christ. Grace justifies us. Grace sanctifies us at, until we see Christ at His appearing, at which point grace glorifies us. Amen? No more sin. No more sorrow. No more renouncing ungodliness. So the only way to do what Paul is telling us to do here, the only way to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions is by grace and grace alone. The only way to, to, to pursue a godly life full of good works is not by saying, well, I'm, I'm saved by grace, but now I've got to get sanctified by works. That's not the way. Grace saves you not only from the penalty of your sin, but also from the power and eventually even the very presence of sin. It's all grace from beginning to end. Now, do you remember we sang, All I Have is Christ? Do you remember what you sang? The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. That's exactly right. Did you mean that? Because we sang it. The, the, the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be. My only boast is you. It's all grace. You see, what, what sanctification looks like is constantly looking at works. Are you confused? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Some of you are. Sancti what sanctification looks like is constantly looking at works, just not your own. It's looking at the finished work of Christ again and again and again, constantly looking back to the finished work of Christ on the cross, His perfect fulfillment of the law in, in, in His perfect life, all of which is yours by faith, Christian. How you get sanctified, how grace purifies you is by constantly going back again and again and again to the cross of Christ. Amen? And here's, the, and here's the result. That resting in Christ is not, is not passive. It is constantly producing good works because that soul is resting in Christ and Christ alone. And as we look to Christ, here's what happens. 
Grace sanctifies us. Grace purifies us. And what we find as we rest in Christ is that we find His yoke easy and His burden is light and we find obedience to be a joyful thing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for what You have taught us from Your Word. We pray that You would bring us again and again and again to Christ. Let us see Christ as the fulfillment of all of the expectations required of us. And we pray that the Spirit of Christ would continue to sanctify us and and conform us into the image of Christ who is our only hope in life and in death. Father, glorify Yourself in our hearts, we pray. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.